Welcome to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Epstein. This is our fourth and final episode on the HBO show Succession from a corporate governance perspective. It has been a lot of fun delivering the series, and in this episode, we cover the season's finale. In this podcast, we are joined by Joe Nocera, a distinguished business journalist and author known for his insightful and often critical views on various aspects of business and economics. Joe's career in journalism has been marked by various notable roles, including at leading publications such as Bloomberg, New York Times, Fortune Magazine, GQ, and Esquire. Kate O'Leary, the Global Executive Litigation Council at GE, also comments from the perspective of an experienced in-house lawyer who deals with governance challenges in the real world. We covered issues from the first season of Succession on episode 98 in May of 23, second season on episode 102 in June of 23, and the third season on episode 109 in September of 23. If you have not heard those episodes, please feel free to check them out. The show Succession centers on the Roy family, the owners of Waste Royco, a global media and entertainment conglomerate who are fighting for control of the company before and after the death of the family's patriarch, Logan Roy. In this episode, we discuss the ending of the show, plus several corporate governance matters, including the role of dual-class share structures, ESG, and board duties. We also talk about the influence of media companies in government matters, potential fraud allegations and shareholder litigation, obstacles to women's success in the workplace, family business matters, and much more. If you like this show, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing this podcast on social media. You can also now contribute as a patron on the link patreon.com slash boardroomgovernancepod and subscribe to the Boardroom Governance newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com. The Boardroom Governance Podcast is sponsored by the American College of Governance Council. The ACGC is a professional association of lawyers and academics in the U.S. and Canada, widely recognized for the expertise and achievements in the field of corporate governance. The ACGC was founded by some of the most prominent U.S. corporate governance lawyers, and today the organization includes over 150 practitioners and academics. The ACGC's mission is to promote a high level of professional standards among governance lawyers along with a better understanding and broader adoption of best practices within business organizations. You should check out their website at amgovcollege.org. That is A-M-G-O-V-C-O-L-L-E-G-E dot org. All right, this is the final episode or review of our HBO Succession series. Very happy to be here again with Kate O'Leary from GE. And we have a special guest for this episode, none other than Joe Nocera, who joins us after a 40-year business (laughs) journalism career through many different organizations. He's an author of many books. So thank you, Joe, for joining us. Um, It's a pleasure to be here, and I hope we're going to have some fun. All right. Okay. One of the things that maybe we can start is with the influence of the founder, of this father figure, of this visionary. So in this case, we have Logan, who is this powerful figure. So maybe, Kate, let's talk a little bit about that influence, how it permeates towards the kids, and how do you think the episode evolves in that direction? Sure. Yeah. I. I yeah. I think throughout the season, we see them struggling to 
figure out what Logan's legacy is, to honor that legacy in some way, and also to depart from it. I mean, clearly, especially in terms of Shiv and some of the other characters, they don't want to recreate the world according to Logan, right? And and I think we also see in the funeral episode, which is really incredible, it's like a, a referendum on the life of Logan and who Logan was as a leader. And his brother Ewan stands up and gives a a scathing eulogy. I'm not sure if one would talk call it that, but a scathing speech about Logan and how toxic he was and how much harm Ewan believes he created in the world and how much divisiveness. And then Kendall gets up and sort of does the counterpoint, talking about that whatever you might say about Logan, he did things, he built things, he had an incredible vigor and energy. And Kendall even says, and I hope that I have some of that in me as well, right? So there's Mm -hmm. this sense that for the company to move forward, it requires somebody who's like Logan, right? I I also think we see in Matson some Logan-type qualities. And in fact, at one point, Matson even refers to himself as Logan Roy 2.0. So we get a real chance to look at what does that leadership style look like? And as we've been talking about from the very first episode, part of what that leadership style is, is kind of making the leader making themselves ungovernable, right? So it's the ultimate corporate governance challenge. How do you go about trying to control unchecked power to follow rules and regulations to build a company culture that makes sense and is sustainable if it's led by somebody who doesn't believe in rules, essentially, and doesn't believe in following rules. And and we certainly see that in Kendall, especially. We see it in, you know, arguably uh, everyone at the company, but I think Kendall becomes kind of the logical heir to that. And yeah. Joe, let me ask you something uh, quickly. How real and how many cases have you seen of uh, big, powerful figures like Logan in the show? And what's when you were seeing the show, did it remind you of anybody? And how closely uh, is this uh, real in terms of thinking about family businesses and media empires of this kind? Well, um, you know, obviously, uh, it's well known that Logan is based on Rupert Murdoch. Mm-hmm. And... Um, in real life, uh, Rupert did have his two sons fairly high up in the company and supposedly competing with each other to see who's going to be the leader, whatever. But James eventually drops out because um, he's more liberal than than Rupert, and he he has a lot of distaste for Fox News and uh, some of the other things. And Lachlan you know, is much more uh, ideologically attuned with his dad and winds up, in, uh, you know, running the company. Now, the crucial difference, the crucial difference is that Lachlan and James are competent. Hmm. And yeah, Rupert controls the company through his, you know, shares of super voting stock, right? But, you know, if they weren't competent, the shareholders would be up in arms. Now, look at the New York Times. They've had a family-run company for 100 years, Salzburgers. And Senior Salzburger passed it on to his son, Arthur Salzburger Jr., who has now passed it on to his son, 
uh, A.G. Salzberger, they're all competent. They're all competent. And they 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 um, they've been inside the company their whole lives. And so that's the that the crucial difference. Why? Why is Logan trying to sell Waystar? The answer is simple. He knows his kids can't cut it. So his way of getting out of this whole dilemma is to sell the company, give the kids billions of dollars, you know, uh, for their as their share for this for their for their stock, and then let them all go their own way. And you know what screws the plan up, of course, is that he dies, and suddenly you have these kids who've been scheming for you know four seasons about how they're gonna how they're gonna try and take over from their dad. Suddenly put in this position where it it should or get off the pot time. And they don't know how to get off the pot. You know, <laughs> they just know how to shit. You know, I, I think that's great. And you, you raise an issue that I think is important to talk at least a little bit. You know, I live here in Silicon Valley in, in San Francisco where dual claw shares and super voting uh, power is prominent among tech leaders. As you mentioned, New York Times and other media organizations have had this for a much longer time. And uh, my question to you is how do you see this structure in general. And the trend in corporate governance has been, well, we see how maybe some founders want to have a vision, but it shouldn't be forever, right? And we should have some sort of sunset provision, whether it's seven years, 10 years, whatever it is. But how how have you seen from your perspective, the evolution since Google's IPO in, two, in 2004 of these super voting shares? And what do you make out of them? Well, I know that the politically correct response is to say they're terrible because they they cut the shareholders out out of they, the shareholders don't get to make major decisions and I can understand that but I, I find that the quote unquote shareholder activists are such a force for for um, uh, evil that's too strong a word but not that too strong a word that protecting companies against uh, raids from shareholder activists like Carl Icahn, if you can do it through a dual, dual shares, I'm, I'm in favor of that. I, I will say that in the, in the media business, just because you have dual shares doesn't necessarily mean you can hold on forever. Right. And the great example of that is the Wall Street Journal, where the Bancroft family ran it for years and years and years, and they were a very poor steward of that asset. And they were not willing to fire incompetent CEOs and, and editors-in-chief. And, and as a result, Rupert wound up getting it because he was able to divide the family and, and, and pick off the shares uh, of family members until he became an unstoppable force. So just because you have dual shares doesn't mean you will always be protected mm -hmm. from the vagaries of the marketplace. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and I just, uh, there's a paper out there called Ousted, which also makes this point. It doesn't protect you all the way. And if we think about succession, even if Kendall would have gone and taken it, and let's assume they would have had super voting shares because of his incompetence, that would not have protected him, arguably, in that fate, right? Right. And and the board, Katie, I don't mean to keep talking here. Um, no, it's great, Joe. I love to hear your insights on this. This is great. You know, the board did not have the same loyalty to Kendall that they had to Logan. So people like Frank and Jerry were not necessarily going to side with Kendall on important uh, matters. And chances are, if he 
performed as poorly as he probably would have, given what we know about him, he wouldn't have lasted very long. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting, and I think it's it's a good insight as well for, for the show in, ter- in terms of thinking about succession, because that's essentially put in place for succession purposes. Um, Kate, you know, th- there is a lot of importance around people, process, and policies, and we've been trying to convey that message over a long time. Uh, rather than the successive power that is yielded by individual decision makers with agendas. But let's talk about this need for better governance, maybe how elections were conducted. There was this big issue where there was the presidential election and and the media was kind of, uh, or, or this media organization was very influential there. How do you think about government relations there and kind of the influence of media over this decision process? Do you think that was real? I mean, you you work a little bit, uh, you know, with, with this uh, idea with the regulators. So, how do you think about that process? Yeah, it's interesting. We could probably do a whole season just on the role of media and politics. But uh, you know, I think that um, it, it's interesting. You know, we we've discussed this in earlier episodes, Evan, in terms of the um, weaponization of regulatory, uh, which we see a lot in this season, right? I mean, the whole reason that anybody who works at ATN really cares about the outcome of the election is because they want to have the deal with Mencken go through, or they want to block the deal, right? So in other words, the view is they want the person elected who's going to do their bidding in terms of using laws and regulations to get to the outcome that they want, right? So it looks like Mencken is going to block the deal, right? And so Kendall and Roman think that's a great thing because they don't want the Gojo deal to go through. And Shiv tries to use that to her advantage by saying, well, you know, this is a real problem if Mencken gets elected because he's, you know, going to block this deal. And at the end of the day, in terms of calling the election, I don't, you know, we used to own a network many, many years ago. We don't anymore. Uh, but th- there are some close calls that that are made, certainly at the last minute with a small group of people in the room. And that's one of those things where, again, the ATN board can't, the, the Waystar Royco board, which owns ATN, can't be there in the room that night. So they have to kind of depend on the integrity of the folks who are there and what the policies are in terms of what's required to call an election. You know, what, what happens. And again, one of the consistent themes of this show from the very beginning is how do you make decisions based on imperfect information? And by the way, information is always imperfect, right? And so these are huge consequential decisions being made on the basis of not enough data, but the, but the decision still has to be made. Right. And so you've got, decision desk Darwin, who's one of my favorite characters in that particular episode. And he says, yeah, there's there's all these votes that were destroyed in this suspicious fire that will never be counted. And we don't know which way they would go, except I do know. And of mm. course, what he means is, you know, based on what we know about that precinct, as you know, on election night, a lot of it is kind of baked in unless something truly extraordinarily different went on in that precinct, right? So based on prior experience and based on what's been counted so far, they have a pretty good sense that that those districts would probably not have gone for Mencken. So the folks at ATN are able to tip the scale in favor of their preferred candidate. 
which is alarming, right? And 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 they do it, you know, explicitly in exchange for kind of an understanding of what Mencken is willing to do for them. Do boards have a role there? I think they probably do. Again, a lot of this comes down to culture. A lot of it comes down to, you know, what's a quid pro quo versus just having good relationships with governments. Because obviously every company wants to have a good relationship with people in the government, whether that's the president, the you know people at the SEC, whatever. And there are ways to do that that are certainly perfectly legitimate and constructive. And then there's mm. kind of the way that Waystar goes about it, which I would argue is not. Joe, what, what was your reaction to the whole uh, Mencken presidential candidate election, and and how how real was that in, in the show? Um, it was not that real, only because it was so blatant. Um, any company, right. of course, it's a TV show. That's, I mean, you know, my line on secession is using secession to to draw uh, real to really understand corporate America is like using the Simpsons to really understand small town, small towns. Not too bad. actually. Um, but... Yeah. <laughs> I'll take that. <laughs> um, but my, my point is they, nobody does it that blatantly, uh, not even Rupert Murdoch, but, but you'll notice that what Rupert would do was he would use his newspapers, especially the New York post as the as the spear as the as that be that would be out front he would decide okay we're going to side with trump and so the new york post would be you know anti biden or anti hillary and just trump 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 and then same thing would be a fox news but fox news to their everlasting credit you'll recall in 2016 i believe it was they called a state no, was it 2020 with Biden? They they called the state for Biden and Trump yep. believe, and they were the first ones to do it. Yeah, it was Arizona. It was in Arizona. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yep. And the Trump people went bonkers. Yep. You know, like this was a like somehow he had stabbed him in the back. But these were just journalists doing their job. And I, I don't think Rupert ever criticized them at least publicly for doing that and to have tried to twist the election return night in a way that shifts it to one candidate or another would, I think, even for Fox, be a bridge too far. And I might also say there aren't usually fires uh, that burn lots of ba ballots. And so really, it's pretty it's a pretty implausible. Uh, the, the real thing that happens, honestly, forget about presidential elections. The real thing that happens in real life is that companies give lots of money to congressmen and senators who can who are on committees that they care about and who are willing to do their bidding. That's how it works. And that's why the little guy always gets screwed in these things because they don't have the the potency, they don't have the money, they don't have the access. And in terms of influence, it's not just media, it's all kinds of companies that are doing this for their own interest. And that's just that's the way the world works. I, it's, is it is it nice? Is it good? No, not necessarily, but that's how it works. Yeah, no, that's that's uh, interesting indeed, and in this case, right? At least they 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 did influence uh, and they crossed that line. But you know, another regulatory matter that caught my eye, um, and it didn't seem to impede the deal with Gojo, was this fact that Gojo had fake numbers and in India had done a a, a deal, and he was just lying, and it was a massive fraud. But they try to do this 
New Deal, where they would pull it under the rug, and 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 you know, Shiv knew about it, and and she kind of pushed it through anyways. I think what it was is they overstated their subscriber numbers in India, and it may have been an error when they first did it, but then they knew. Then they figured out we can't possibly have this many subscribers in India. So then the issue was, do we tell, right? And and Shiv manages it in a way which I think. Mm-hmm as Joe probably knows, is not atypical in, in corporate America, where she arranges for them to release it on a really um, busy news day, basically, right? Uh, Logan Roy has died. People are still covering that. There's, um, you know, chaos and riots in the street as a result of the, of the unsettled election. And so she's like, guys, this would be a really good time to, to put out those restated numbers. And they do. So... It does raise a bunch of other questions, however, in terms of if they were lying about that and or not competent enough to accurately count their own subscribers, what else should the board be worried about, right? And there's no indication that Shiv ever, and again, we don't know, there's a lot that perhaps happens, you know, offstage that we never see. There's no indication that Shiv ever goes to the board and says, by the way, these guys are making up numbers, right? And maybe that's something you ought to worry about in terms of selling the company to them. Now, obviously, it's a little bit different when you're being acquired versus acquiring. I certainly think that if Waystar, if it was back to the original plan, which was Waystar was going to acquire Gojo, I think it would be a bigger problem for Waystar. But again, it still does raise those governance issues about what are the what are the internal controls around how these numbers get reported? You know, how long? I mean, certainly if the government would ever look at it, they would want to know how long did the folks at Gojo know that these numbers were wrong? How many public filings did they do uh, in which they didn't correct the, the incorrect numbers? And all of that would be actionable and could still be actionable even after the acquisition. Well, actionable to, to actionable like like crazy. I mean, this is this is yeah. litigation heaven for uh, for plaintiffs' lawyers, and and the idea that you could do this and not be not be sued is is implausible in fact and um uh, uh shareholders i mean it would it would it would have cost uh gojo and or waystar a ton of money if they put the deal through knowing that numbers had been doctored and hadn't said anything about it yeah and and i think shiv uh you know what w- what is interesting about the show right is the the self interest of every character so clear Right and 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 even the board uh, at some point they only ma- they only care about the price right and they are ignoring these red flags which as you say Joe later on is going to cost them in litigation because if that comes out right or if plaintiff lawyers sue and they were omitting these uh, important uh, data uh, then then of course they have liability over that um, but but Shiv is interesting because she's you know, pushing this and she's positioning herself as the new CEO, right? And so she's helping Lucas Matson personally to uh, get this deal done. So I think that's really interesting in terms of the, 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 the self-interest of every character in the show. Oh, yeah. And we could definitely do a sequel, you know, uh, Succession 2, Here Come the Lawsuits, right? Um, it, <laughs> I don't know how many people would, would tune in, but um, but yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And what we never see because the show ends is 
is there a stock price reaction, you know, when the, when this information is revealed? Like how much were did investors care about how many subscribers there were in India? But it does also, as I said, expose uh, issues with regard to internal controls, the integrity of the people running the company and all of that, which are your, your less easy to quantify factors, but still, you know, very material in terms of, um, of how shareholders might view a company. In terms of the self-interest, though, I think that's one of the things that succession gets pretty accurately because mm -hmm. um, a board that is contemplating being taken over and is, has basically put itself on the, on, the, on the market, you know, the price is what matters. The price is what matters. You're trying to get the, the highest possible price mm -hmm. you can. You sometimes are uh, inviting other companies to come in and see if you can top the bid. Um, and then, of course, the CEO has self-interest because he's going to get rich, uh, even richer than he already is, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I do think that the, the, the sort of uh, overlay or the subtext of greed is, mm -hmm. is, is a pretty accurate representation of what happens in the middle of a big deal. Yeah. And, and, you know, that in legal terms is your Revlon duties, right? If, if you put yourself out for a sale, you got to maximize that, that price. And um, the, the question there is, of course, uh, there are uh, ignoring these red flags, they're ignoring the data, and it's an artificial price, right? So, so you, you, you have to maximize the return for shareholders, but you have to do it uh, in a way that is proper and, and don't overlook these things, because that, that's going to cost you at the end. Right. And I think most boards don't overlook those things, in fact. Mm. Well, one good case we have there is Twitter and, and Elon, right? And, and, the, and the board of uh, Twitter. Uh, they <laughs> you call that a good case? You call that a well, good case? Well, let me just say that, that a, good, a good example, right, where you could argue that whether Elon is is bad or good, uh, the board of Twitter uh, took the best offer, right? And they said this price we we will not get it anywhere else, and they and they approved it, right? So so that's part of your point that you're making, right, Joe? No, that's that's very true. But I'll give you a, a, let me give you another case you probably have forgotten about, but that that serves as a much better a real life example. Um, I can't remember what year it was, but HP bought a company called Autonomy. Oh yeah, you know yeah, yeah. a British yeah. a, yep. a British yeah. company, and um, and then it turned out that Autonomy had been cooking the books for years. Mm -hmm. HPA didn't know about it, but then once HP found out about it, they sued the bejesus out of everybody, and um, and they even got the government involved. So to the point that uh, Michael Lynch, the former CEO, is out in San Francisco now, uh, waiting to uh, be tried by the by the federal government. So, yeah. you know, that's what <laughs> that's that's much more the the norm when when fraud is discovered by a company that buys another company. Yeah. Yeah. No, that... okay, it, go ahead. It, it, I was just going to say it raises also sustainability arguments. Right. The, the quick one day payoff when you sell the company for a very high price, because clearly Matson was willing to keep upping the price in order to get this deal through versus what's the long term future of the company. Well, right? you could does say, not even matter, right? You, you could say that about Twitter for sure, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, they yeah. they took the high they took the highest price and now we have a uh, more or less destroyed company. Yep. Yeah, well, no, who absolutely. You ask, but but I think it's a little bit unusual that case just because it's one person buying the company, right? Rather than a company. So it's a very unusual case, but 
Well, wait, 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 wait. Okay. <laughs> it's it, it's unusual in one sense, but in another sense, it's not unusual. Mm-hmm. Companies overpay all the time mm-hmm. because the CEO wants to build his empire, because they think there's something there that turns out not to be there, or because they're in a competition with another company and they got to have this victory. Yep. Overpaying is 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 very normal. And then you have these multi-billion dollar write-downs, blah, blah, blah. So, so yes, Twitter's unusual in that it's one person who bought it, but it's not unusual in that um, an insane price was paid uh, for uh, a, a, an asset that didn't deserve that price. Right. Also, the you know, the ultimate, arguably ultimate ungovernable CEO, Elon is, of course, <laughs> the perfect example of that. And the rise of the the ungovernable CEO, you know, I think it's it's really interesting to see uh, as these people emerge as charismatic leaders who are able to convince lots of people around them to go along with things, even when people think, well, maybe this isn't quite the right thing to do. Also, Elon and Lucas Matson, I think, are really interesting to yes. compare because, of course, Lucas Matson has this whole thing where he's putting out, you know, seemingly crazy tweets to try to pump up the price of Gojo right. so that right. he can turn the tables on Logan and he can say, oh, you're going to acquire me? I don't think so. I'm going to acquire you, right? And that's all part of a strategy, but it's a totally illegal strategy, right? You know, he's he's, right. he's leaking material, non-public information. He's, you know, doing all kinds of things that you shouldn't be doing. And at least in the course of the show, he gets away with it. You know, it'll, we'll have to wait for the sequel to see what happens to Lucas ultimately. Um but, you know, such an interesting parallel there, I thought. And Lucas as the new Logan, I think, is a really interesting thing to contemplate yeah. as well. Yeah, for sure, it's this tech mogul character who, you know, tries to modernize old media, right? But let me ask you a separate question, uh, Kate, because this comes up a lot, which is eliminating obstacles to women's success in the workplace. And uh, here, there's a lot of backlash in the in the episode and the series where you have Shiv, who is the lone sister and always taking the shadow of her older brothers or uh, two other brothers. And you have Jerry, the GC, and, and Ebba, who is top executive for Lucas, right? And, and tell us a little bit about how did you see that perspective from the show yeah. and, and how, how that evolved? Because that's an interesting storyline in the series as well about uh, the, the role of women in, in corporations. Yeah, it is. I, I have a lot of thoughts about this, as you know. Um, I think we could yeah. probably do a whole episode on women. But, um, I, you know, it is difficult because Shiv is in a difficult place. And, and ultimately, you understand why she's not chosen as the head of the company. She doesn't have experience. However, what her father does to her is he says you know, in, in season two, oh, it's going to be you. I want you. And she's like, great, bring me in. And he spends the whole season keeping her out, essentially, right? Not giving her any of the experience or training or credibility that she would need to eventually become the leader, right? So you could say she chose to do something else, but you could also say that she was prevented. She wasn't groomed in the same way as her brothers were for potential success in, in the leadership role. 
Coupled with that, you've got the very complicated dynamic with Matson, where he ultimately says to Tom anyway, and I think we're meant to believe him, this is too complicated because I'm like super attracted to her and that's really messy. So he basically goes in in much coarser terms, much coarser terms. And he actually says to Tom, I figure why not get the guy who put the baby in her instead of bothering with the baby lady. And I think like every woman watching that is like, oh, my God. Right. But he says the quiet part out loud. Right. And so you're like, wow. So she loses out on the job for for all kinds of reasons. And maybe she wouldn't have been good at it either. We don't really know. But but she's fairly sensible. And I think ultimately she's the one who pulls the plug on the destructive family dynamic by refusing to vote with Kendall in the end. Um, Jerry, again, super complicated. I, in previous podcasts, have been very critical of Jerry because I feel like she ignored a lot of red flags. She didn't take action. She didn't escalate things appropriately. She pushed back just a tiny little bit so she could say she pushed back, but then she ultimately caves. Um, On the other hand, the circumstances of her getting fired are horrible, right? She's, she's, you know, essentially fired because Logan becomes uncomfortable with her once he finds out that she's got this weird relationship with Roman, where Roman is sending her inappropriate pictures of himself. And it makes Logan uncomfortable to think about any of that. So he basically says, well, when he's talking to Roman about maybe Roman could lead the company, he goes, yeah, but we got to get rid of Jerry. Let's, I think he even says at some point, let's hang cruises around her neck, right? When it's clear that she was certainly not the central bad guy in cruises, maybe she didn't do as much as she could have as soon as she could have to resolve it. Ultimately, in her words, she said, you know, I, I danced us through a rainstorm and we, did, we barely got wet. And I think that's right. You know, what, what ends up happening to them with DOJ, they pay a big fine. Nobody goes to jail. She does her job and she does it pretty well. And she ends up getting fired for kind of no apparent reason, which is very troubling. Um, Ebba is complicated also. I mean, she, you know, Lucas admits to... Shiv, and I think we're supposed to believe he's telling the truth, that he's engaged in this very dark, long-running harassment of Ebba, which involves him, after they break up, he sends her frozen bricks of his blood, right? So again, it's a TV show, right? This doesn't, hopefully this doesn't happen to too many women in real life, but certainly not the first woman to be hampered by an obsessive relationship in the workplace that she tries to get out of. And she's kind of in an impossible situation because he doesn't want her to quit. So she's, you know, in, in some of the episodes, she's basically like begging to get fired. She's like, I'm just waiting to get out of here. Right. She can't really go because he'll trash her if she does. So she's kind of in an impossible position. You know, mm-hmm. she could write a book, but he would sue her. Right. And so she's, trapped in a way. And of course, he's never going to really advance her as well, because clearly he has feelings for her too. So it's, I found Succession to be, and again, in the same way that I think Joe's absolutely right, Simpsons doesn't tell you about a small town, but yet it kind of does, you know, and, and I sort of feel that way about Succession and how things in real corporations work. It's an extreme version, but these are real issues that real women face all the time. And I don't know that there's a corporate governance solution to it other than culture, right? You know, it all comes back to culture and how you build culture. And clearly Waystar had a toxic culture for for many, many years in terms of the treatment of women. And you get the sense that Lucas Matson's company 
has a really pretty toxic culture too. I mean, first of all, Ebba appears to be the only woman who works there, right? You know, at least in the upper ranks of managers when they're all sitting around talking, it's, you know, it's the guys and Ebba, right? And, you know, and I think that's, I mean, clearly we know, I think, clearly we know it's true that a lot of these tech startups um, do have a woman problem, right? They they do have a, 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 a culture that is toxic for women. What, I don't know how to solve that, but if anybody figures it out, it, it'll be a great yeah, day. Yeah, Joe, I want to ask you, having covered all these different companies and Wall Street and, and Silicon Valley for so many years, I mean, what what can you tell us about this problem of culture and, 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 and how did you see succession in that perspective uh, and, and thinking about those issues? Well, are you talking about women's issues, the the issue of women, or or more generally just their their overall I think culture? Overall culture, and 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 you know, just because I, I think Kate covered the woman issue so well, but maybe the spillover is evident to women, right? But, but in broader sense, you know, culture and how that permeates the board and the company itself. Well, any well-run company wouldn't do ninety percent of the stuff they do on succession, you know. Um, people like Roman and Kendall wouldn't be around. Um, women would, there might be a glass ceiling or maybe not, but women wouldn't be routinely harassed, um, because in the, especially post me too, there's a, there's a, there's a heavy price to be paid for that. Uh, thankfully. And the third thing is in the modern age, the Rupert Murdochs and the Logan Roys are anomalies. I mean, you got a you got a you got a situation now where David Solomon at Goldman Sachs is being widely criticized. Why? Because he's a he's a harsh boss. He's a brutal boss. He 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 makes demands. He's not he's not empath he's not an empathetic person. You know he's and and you know in the and nowadays. Companies want leaders that that can nurture and uh, lead by example and um, can get people to do things because they want to do them for the person or, or the company rather than they have to. And so and then and then, you know, you know, nowadays they can't even get the employees to come to work. You know, everybody wants to work from home. Joe, let me ask you a question about this, uh, because I think you're touching on something that's really important, which is maybe a new generation or a new way of, of doing things. And one of the spillovers in the governance arena is, at some level, the politicization of corporate governance, uh, ESG becoming a mantra, and, and how you know environmental issues and social issues are, are very strong. And uh, this creates a lot of tension to CEOs and boards on how to act towards these issues. And there are different views around this. So I'll give you the example, Coinbase. Uh, you know, the case yeah. of Coinbase is interesting because he, he basically put a statement out there and said, look, we don't want to have a discussion of politics in the company, in the chats. And if, if you don't like that, you can leave the company. We'll give you a package, which is a very generous package. And I think about 5% of the employees or maybe 10% left. He later said uh, that it was the best thing he ever did. But it's a very different perspective yeah. on how to manage that social issue. And so, and, and, and there is debate around this. Yeah, there's, there is debate. Look, Silicon Valley is not the place to uh, plant your flag in terms of corporate culture. 
You know, it, it's just not. They're... Look, the vast majority, most, most young workers, why did the ESG come along in the first place? A lot of the reason is because the employee base at a company like Kellogg's or Procter & Gamble or Xerox or IBM, they're mostly socially liberal. You know, they're pro-choice. They're pro-environment. They're um, they're uh, black. They're pro Black Lives Matter, and a lot of this movement began in the first place because companies wanted to make their employees happy. They wanted to give their employees a sense of a higher purpose than just you know um, banging out copier machines, and so ESG evolved. ESG, you go to a couple of like, uh, like, like uh, General Mills or Kellogg's and you walk down the aisle and you walk down the hallway and all, all, all on the walls, you're going to see, um, you know, uh, come and help build a house for the homeless uh, uh, next Saturday. Or, you know, we're going to be the greenest company in the world in five years. Here's what we need to do or blah, blah, blah. People inside these companies are not complaining about it. They like it. They like it. They want it. So, you know, yes, the conservative movement has made a big deal about this and they've gone after Larry, um, uh, Larry Fink at, 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 at BlackRock. But to me, it's 90, 90 percent of it is bullshit. It's just it's just, you know, ESG is a way to make make your employees happy. That's all it is. And the and for the conservatives, it's a lovely way to bash corporations. That, 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 yeah. I think I think there's there's well, a lot of truth in that, and I would say we we see a bit of that in succession as well. And again, sometimes you need to have things stated in an extreme way for people to really get it. But we haven't talked about Jess, Kendall's assistant, Jess, who quits. Ooh. She quits after the election, and she basically says to him, "I can't work at a place like this." Right? And right. we also see Shiv. I mean, one could argue that Shiv's final decision to be the deciding vote to sell the company is a very complicated one. It's very overdetermined. There's so many different reasons, but one of them you could argue and where she really changes her mind is when she realizes how much ATN is putting uh, its finger on the scale for Mencken, right? And, and she realizes that when they're on that, the retreat with Matson, and, and she basically says, forget it. We should dump ATN. It's a toxic, asset. Like, I don't want to, this shouldn't be part of us. Right. And, and I think that's absolutely right. I think there is a thread there where, and corporations just don't care about their employees because they're caring entities. Well, they care about their employees because they want to attract top talent. Right. And, but Kate, you know, and my, my impression there is maybe different or maybe parallel in that I think Shiv at some point, you know, when they get together <clears throat> in the Bahamas or wherever they are in, in a British Virgin Islands, and the brothers decide, okay, we're going to side together and we're going to vote and we're going to vote against it. Mm -hmm. And they seem to be happy. They seem okay. We're going to do it together. They go there, but in that final scene where you have the board meeting, and it it's down to Shiv. She's the last vote, and she gets up and she says, "I need a minute." And yep. there's the famous scene where the all the three together. It's obvious to me that at that stage, she realizes there's no way Kendall is going to be able to lead this company. Right. And then, and then Kendall, 
that scene, I, I rewatched it. Yep. And it's so apparent to me that he's such an implausible character. And, and, and he says, well, wh- why, why not me? And she says, well, you killed somebody. He's like, what, whom? Which one? <laughs> like, <Yeah>. Which one, <laughs> right? Like, and, and, then, and then he denies it. And, and, and then Roman kind of calls him out. And is like, what do you mean? Yeah. And, and it's such a ridiculous moment of where you realize that these kids, and, and Roman says it, you know, we are just bullshit. You know, yeah. we just are. And and it's clear that Shiv makes up her mind and, and, and she's right in that sense. But I don't know what was your reaction to that last scene, the board, that, that moment, the pivotal moment. Uh, and maybe, Joe, what was your reaction to that scene and, and, and that board meeting? <laughs> well, yeah, this is not this is a little off point, but my reaction was it totally reminded me of John McCain walking into the Senate chamber with the Senate tied on Obamacare. Yeah. And and going and and going and just going thumbs down after everybody after waiting for everybody everybody everybody. No, I think um, I think it is true. I think that Shiv does realize that th- there's no way her brothers can run this company, and um, and she 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 sort of makes her peace with that in a weird way. And um, it's like let the chips fall where they may and. Yeah, I I totally agree. I think she sees Kendall becoming a a worse version of Logan in a way, you know, without Logan's talent, but with the bullying, when when Roman casts the vote, uh, when when Roman votes no, and Kendall mutters sort of under his breath, "Yeah, that's right." It it sounds just like Logan. It sounds just like what Logan said when Roman voted with him back in season one, right? So you realize. Oh my gosh, here she sees her brother Roman getting pushed around and bullied by Kendall in the same way that he was pushed around and bullied by Logan. And it's got to stop, right? And I think she says it, you know, for a lot of reasons, some of which are self interested. She's always are now going to be married to the CEO of the new company, which is a whole other thing we didn't get into. But, um, but yeah, she says this is a, a toxic culture and I'm not going to vote to perpetuate it, essentially. I always did think, though, that the main reason Roman was unqualified and that people can see it is is he was so indecisive. He didn't know how to make a decision right. and he did. And he didn't know how to stick to a decision. And that's the opposite of Logan. The thing about Logan was he could make a decision and he could stick to it. And he and he knew his own mind. And he was unlike his sons and daughter. He was usually right. Yeah, I think that's right. Roman, the Roman Jerry combination when they were talking about that as a leadership uh, structure. Maybe that could have worked, but I agree. Roman on his own never could have worked. So let's let's talk about, you know, now let's wrap up the whole show, right? The four episodes together. And maybe, okay, let's, let's, what are the takeaways that you would give to boards, if anything, about the show? And why do you think maybe directors should watch it? I mean, there's obviously a tremendous uh, show in, in terms of, the writing and and the effect and and kind of the theatrics of it are great, but but if you clean up some of the governance takeaways, what can you say about that? I think it's a tremendous cautionary tale uh, for directors and you know officers and leaders of companies in terms of the the core part of governance, which I believe is how do you make decisions, right? How does a corporation make decisions? And and we didn't get to the whole issue of navigating by dad maps, but there's this great conversation that happens when they're all in um, in Scandinavia for the for the Gojo retreat. And 
Roman and Kendall are trying to figure out what would dad do. And Shiv essentially says, we can't navigate by dad maps, right? But sort of what is your map as a corporation? Like what is your philosophy? What is your corporate purpose? What is your mission? What are your values? And I think all of those things matter because that's what guides you in those moments of imperfect information of which there are many where decisions have to be made. Also, you know, people process policies, right? What's the structure for decision-making? Who gets to make the decision? What's, what are the informational inputs that are required to make good and responsible decisions? And so I think, I totally agree with Joe, 90% of what goes on in this show is a to not to, right? You know, these are, these are don'ts, right? These are not do's. The right, exactly. Is but it's showing it in such an extreme way and I, that I do think people also see parallels. And it also shows you why it matters how decisions are made, you know, why it matters whether the board has complete information or not, why it matters whether you have an incompetent egomaniac, you know, in charge of a company. And and how do you build a leadership structure? How do you build training and succession planning and all of that so you don't end up in a situation where the only people internal candidates vying for for the leadership position are not credible or competent. I mean, part of what's interesting is nobody saw Tom really as a candidate to lead the whole company mm-hmm. until Lucas Matson came along. Now, Tom may be a good choice, bad choice. We could have a huge debate about that. But he's arguably more competent than any of the SIBs, right? So how do you how do you figure that out? You know, how do you build a culture that makes sure the right people get promoted, that they're trained in the right way and that they're, and that the culture is working. And, and so for me, that's, what's so powerful about this show. You, you really see all of the ways in which when that goes off the rails, it has huge implications for everybody from the board to the folks in the C-suite to the, all of the employees and shareholders of Waystar. I, I think it's, I just would, um, if I were a director the main thing I would focus on is that um, of the many tasks a CEO has, one of the most important is to is to find his successor. And um, you know, su- succession shows you how not to do that. Obviously, you know, there's nothing wrong with having two potential candidates in big jobs and seeing how each one does which is a lot different from what Logan does, which is to jerk his kids around and really has no, when he dies, he has no successor. And, uh, you know, you know, a, a, a CEO should have somebody lined up. And uh, Joe, let me ask you a question here, because I recently read last week that for the first time, there are more billionaires that are inherited wealth versus people creating wealth. So we are seeing a new class of people that are, Inherited wealth is pervasive, and this type of issue is happening to all the baby boomers, right? So we are in a moment where all of these industries where succession will matter, and particularly family governance, which has the added complexity of family, and it's not only a corporation. Now you have you know, family protocols and different personal issues. So do you think we're going to see more of these complicated issues, and do you think there is a moment in time where... And, and we're seeing with the data where this whole class of inherited wealth, where maybe they're they're not they're like the Romans and 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 Kendalls of the world. No, I don't think that. <laughs> and the reason I don't think that is because there's very few companies 
that uh, where it's assumed that the children will take over from the dad. It's, it's really not the way these things generally work. Uh, uh, News Corp is an anomaly. Success, you know, Waystar is an anomaly. You're not going to find very many that have a, a, a family structure. And that's good. That's good. They shouldn't have family structures. Um, and most of the time, the kids go off and do something else. Or they, they run the family office or whatever. But it's pretty rare that the billionaire dad passes the business off to the billionaire kid. Yeah, maybe that's it's. And I don't think there are that many. It's an empirical. It's an empirical question, to be honest. I mean, I think if you go to Europe, it's it's a way bigger uh, number of corporations run by families. That's true. Asia, that's true. But in Asia and Latin America. But look at Walmart. Look at Walmart. So mm-hmm. you know, Sam Walton starts it. He's the founder. He's the he's the CEO. He's the chairman of the board. He dies. Maybe one of his kids was a high-level executive after that, but I don't believe there was ever a Walton, another Walton as a CEO. There are still some Waltons on the board because they own, you know, a huge amount of the stock. That's totally appropriate. But there's no Waltons who are vying to be the next CEO of Walmart, and that's as it should be. All right. Well, any final thoughts on succession? I, I, I did have one yeah. thought that occurred to me as, as Katie was talking about uh, Shiv and the second season and how he said, you're going to be the one and then pushes her away, pushes her away. I do think that some founders subconsciously want their company to fail after they're gone. Hmm. They want, they want this idea that only I could have built this and nobody can succeed me um, and do it as well as I did. And that's what I think was going on in season two. And I think maybe that's what's going on throughout Logan's, the four seasons that we watched Logan. Interesting. I think that's entirely, entirely possible because there's also that pivotal scene at the beginning of season four where Logan tells his kids they're not serious people. And, yes, and yes. it's hard to disagree with that, right? But arguably yes. he's not raised them to be serious people. Um, That's right. And I think it's interesting that you ended by by talking about, you know, one of the most important responsibilities of a, of a CEO is to choose a successor, because that was exactly where we started in the first episode of this podcast that we recorded about succession, talking about how one of the most important roles of a board is succession planning and how do you think about it? And it's not a one day issue, right? It's It's not. Yeah, it does ultimately sometimes come down to one vote. But it's got to be years in the making. And That's right. Logan Roy did nothing to make his children the kind of serious people who could take over for him. And, and I think you may be right. He thought there was only one him and the company dies with him. And, and it turns out that's yep. probably kind of yep. true. All right. Well, Kate, thank you so much for uh, sticking with all the episodes. It's been a great discussion. I hope directors really I've loved it. enjoyed it. Uh, Joe, thank you very much for joining us for the last episode. It was, it, it was a ton of fun. So I, I was hoping it would be, and it was. Well done. Right. Thank, thank you so much. much. This is great. Bye. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing leaving a review or sharing this podcast on social media. You can also contribute as a patron on the link patreon.com slash boardroomgovernancepod. You can check out all the details related to this podcast at the website boardroom-governance.com and please feel free to subscribe to the Boardroom Governance newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com.